it's late summer, bait fish are blooming, and the water levels are falling, and the fish are getting condensed. It all adds up to schooling fish, and we're going to talk about that on this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I'm Chad Lachance, and you're listening to Fishful Thinker, the podcast. All things fishful, all the time. Hey guys, Chad Lachance here. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I appreciate it as I always do every week. Also, I appreciate the support of our longtime partner, Sportsman's Warehouse. Visit them at any one of 140 plus stores nationwide or sportsmans.com. Guys, it's uh, middle August at this point, and what that means for around most of the country is we've had all of our bait fish blooms. We have have probably, in a lot of cases, either uh, low or falling water, and uh, in my specific case, we've got high water, but it's now falling on most of the reservoirs that I fish, and water temperatures are at their peak and may start to cool shortly. And that all adds up, like I said in the intro there, to schooling fish. And schooling fish are both a blessing and a curse to anglers. Uh, what do I mean by schooling fish? Uh, schooling fish, what I'm talking about is groups of fish that will form roving packs and attack bait fish. Typically, it's most commonly associated with uh, with shad and the classic boils that, that people see uh, on the surface where shad, a big group of shad, a big uh, ball of shad, so to speak, get pushed to the surface by predator fish and then they will blow up on them. And the predator fish will then work together to create basically chaos in the school. And anyone that's ever watched bait fish roam around, uh, in basically any kind of bait fish, it could be smelt or anchovies or you know, sardines or manhaden in salt water, uh, or it could be, you know, like I said, shad in, in the freshwater, uh, they'll group up and get as tight together as they can. And the whole premise there is safety in numbers. And you're just trying to be the one out of that school of a thousand shad that doesn't get noticed and eaten. And that's a key part of, of catching fish that are feeding on those schools is getting noticed. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll come back to that shortly. But the bait fish will get in real tight balls and attempt to escape the fish that are trying to feed on them. Conversely, the predator fish will work in a, in a group. I've seen them actually push uh, like a, a school of two or three largemouth bass just very gently pushing a school of stocker trout that were freshly stocked. Same scenario, slightly different prey species, obviously. But I've seen them literally work as a team and herd all these little five-inch long fresh stock trout into shallow water and up against a rock bank, uh, like a, specifically up against a broken rock jetty, and then get after them. And they'll push them into that shallow water where they're stuck between the proverbial rock and hard place and get after them. A more common scenario you might see is something like white bass wipers or stripers. Uh, guys that fish Lake Powell or Lake Mead will be very familiar with this. Uh, of course, anywhere those species exist, they will very commonly push shad to the surface and go crazy on them. Uh, and that typically will happen early in the morning and late in the evening more often than not. But I've seen it happen even in the middle of the day. Uh, I've seen largemouth bass push shad in open pockets in wide open water and do the same thing as well. Um, and in saltwater, a lot of species will do it. Um, you know, if you, if you follow any saltwater content or you do any saltwater fishing, you've probably heard of the mullet run. Uh, it goes up and down the east coast of Florida. Um, 
ridiculous amounts of schooling activity that happens there from Jack, everything from Jacks to Tarpon to, to Snook and you name it, everybody feeds in those schools of fish and, uh, in the schools of mullet. And it's a really crazy thing to, to witness for one and certainly to be part of for two. Um, but just about any major predator species will do it. I've even seen catfish do it in open water, uh, chasing shad. So, but it typically comes down to this time of year when the young of the year shad, those shad that were born in May, are now like an inch and a half to three inches long, and they are perfect eating size for everybody in the system, and they and everybody in the system knows it, and they will get after them. And so it can be a really fun time of year to catch fish, but they're not always easy to catch. If it happens, if you're in the right spot at the right time, and a schooling activity happens within casting range of you, uh, yeah, it can sometimes be very easy to catch them. But I've also seen it where it's very difficult to get bites, even though the fish themselves that are feeding uh, are feeding like crazy, but you still can't get them to bite. And the problem is they have a tremendous amount of food right in front of them that's real, and so they can be tricky to get to bite. And one thing I'll tell you right off the bat, I've had a lot of people email me talking about, well, if I could cast net a shad, I could throw it in there and I can catch some uh, on, you know, like live line it. But I can pretty much guarantee you that's not going to work. And the reason being is the shad that you're throwing at that point is too similar to the fish that are that are naturally feeding on. And what that what that mean? What I mean by that is it it's hard to get it noticed. It it doesn't move. Uh, any normal way. Once you net a shad and then put a hook on him, he doesn't work in any sort of normal way. Now, the astute listener is going to say, well, neither does your lure. Well, this is true, but I'm in control of my lure more than I'm in control of the shad. And the shad does whatever the shad does, and no two of them may do the same thing. Plus, I don't fish bait, so that's a whole nother thing. But I've seen a lot of guys do that, particularly in saltwater, where we'll get schooling activity going, and they'll net manhaden, put them on a live line, put them out there. And you get tons of refusals from it. And I think basically it's because the, the predator fish are expecting the prey fish to run from them. And they don't run from them when they're, or not well anyway, when they're hooked, uh, you know, in a live line type situation and you're live baiting. But what they do run from, uh, or what you can make them think is running from them, I should say, is whatever lure it is that you're throwing. And so that can be really important. So the first thing... Let's talk systematically about how we would go about catching fish that are schooling such that you can feed, see them feeding on the surface or busting on the surface, as the case might be. And I'm going to use white bass wipers and stripers for my primary examples because they're the ones that I think of, at least in the western United States where I'm based, are most commonly uh, associated with the activity. And on top of that, they all three species, even though they're very closely related, all act uh, basically the same in terms of how they, they go about it. They'll work in big schools, push all the fish, all the, the shad to the surface, and then get after them. They'll feed really hard for anywhere from five seconds to you know a minute or two, and then everybody will regroup for a minute. All the predator fish will go swallow everything they could swallow. Uh, the prey fish will regroup and ball back up, and everything will reset and start over again, typically somewhere else from where it happened the first time. Therein lies the first problem with schooling fish. You have to get within casting range of them. And that's the hardest part of the scenario a lot of the time, for me anyway, is getting my boat within casting range or having it happen within casting range of me on the bank uh, 
without spoofing the fish. So what I tend to like to do and what I found is most consistent for me is not to try to sneak in on them on the trolling motor. What I find that does is gently push the whole school away from me. So yes, they're the bait fish, the shad are worried about getting eaten, but they're still cognizant of everything that's going on in their system. And yes, the white bass or stripers or whatever are feeding, but they're still cognizant as well of what's going on. So as your boat eases towards them, they will just ease away from you and maintain that same distance in a lot of cases. So what I found it works better for me is to get a full head of steam, depending on how far they are away from me, either on the trolling motor or the big motor, and then kill the motor and let the boat drift into them. They don't tend to go as, as quickly away from the boat when you do that, and I can typically do it faster. So by the time everybody realizes the boat's coming in on them, I'm going to get at least a cast or two into the, into the uh, activity before everybody pushes away from me. So that can be one, one way to get close to them. Another good way to get close to them can be to work an angle on them and basically 45 them if you can using your boat the same way that the fish, the, the predator fish, are using uh, their, their school to push the prey fish into a corner somewhere. So, for instance, I'll work them at a 45 degree angle into a dam face or into shallow water as the case might be. And by the time they realize they run out of room to work that direction, Again, I can get some casts in on them before they get away from me. But uh, that's a scenario that works for me. The other one is if you know an area where they're prone to do it or you've been on the same fish for days or they're working in a pattern, which I've very commonly seen as well, where you can watch them. They'll come up here, then they'll come up 50 yards over there, then they'll be 50 yards back where they were before, and they're typically working up, a, up and down a piece of structure or something like that. Uh, setting your boat there and hoping that it comes to you. In other words, the whole system just comes, the whole, you know, the, the, the predator and the prey work towards your stationary boat. And as long as the boat is stationary with no motors on, it doesn't bother fish, from my experience, much at all, if any at all. And so if you're just sitting there waiting to cast, and that's key, keeping your bait in your hand, ready to go, ready to cast when they come up, uh, a lot of times you can get them to come up right around your boat. And I've seen some scenarios in saltwater where everything around my boat is boiling, like just crazy with jacks just blowing manhaden up everywhere all the way around the boat. And you, as long as the boat's just sitting still, it's almost in that scenario like the bait fish are trying to use your boat uh, as a piece of cover. Uh, haven't seen that so much in freshwater, at least in, say, Colorado, but I have seen it. I've seen entire bays boil in Lake Powell where a bunch of undersized stripers, when I say undersized, they're, say, three to six-pound stripers, uh, will, and they're typically skinny at Lake Powell. They will push a giant pile of shad to the surface in the middle of a bay, and, and there'd be several boats within range of them, and you can just sit there in one spot, and they'll just keep coming to the surface and going. Uh, but that can be key as well. Another thing you can do that will help you uh, is maximize your casting range. So if I know that I'm going out chasing schooling fish, I might be fishing with rods at the extreme length of my rod arsenal. So if my longest spinning rods are eight feet long or seven, six, whatever the case might be, those are the ones I'll probably grab uh, as long as they're in the right power range because power range is most important. Um, I will use those because they'll increase my casting length. As long as you make the rod longer, or the longer you make the rod, I should say, the farther you can throw it, which is why surf rods are really long because guys want to throw way out into the, into the ocean. 
Same thing, I want the longest rod there. On top of that, I want the lightest line I can throw. And my line is typically dictated by my lure, as I've said in a bajillion podcasts and a bajillion TV shows over the years. The line is dictated, the line size and style are dictated by the lure 99.5% of the time. This is the one scenario where I might make a compromise and pick my line before my lure because casting distance will be more important than the specific lure a lot of the time. So one good thing is I can get away with a light line because this is an open water activity most of the time. This is not typically happening around heavy cover. It might happen on the face of a dam or along a jetty, something like that. But that's the only cover you're going to be dealing with. And the fish are going to head for open water when you hook them. So you can get away with lighter line and still lean on fish. I'm not an advocate of light line in most scenarios. It's great for getting bites. It's also great for killing fish through delayed mortality because you have to fight them too long. So I'm not generally a big fan of light line in a lot of scenarios. Having said all that, most of the time, if I'm fishing for white bass uh, or stripers, I'm probably going to eat some of them. So if any of them are exhausted, I will throw them in the live well. Uh, same thing with wipers. I more often than not will release wipers because they don't reproduce. But if I get one that's clearly not recovering, I'll go ahead and eat them as well. So let's say I would normally fish my spoon on, you know, 10-pound tests, let's say. 10-pound braided line. Well, now I'm going to throw it on 8 or maybe even 6-pound braided line because I can throw that a lot farther. And a 3- or 4-pound white bass is not a problem. A, a five or eight pound or 10 pound wiper is not a problem on six pound tests. And a lot of guys are gonna tell you it is, but I'm flat out gonna tell you it's not. And we landed one on film one time that was 12 pounds. I posted online, how long do you think it took to land this fish on six pound test? And I had everything from, from two minutes to 10 minutes. The video from the time we hook it to the time the fish is in the boat is like 40 seconds and he's on six pound test. So it comes down to fighting them intelligently. And because this is an open water thing, you can chase the fish if you need with your trolling motor. So let's say you hook a 15-pound wiper. Well, fine, I'll just jump on the trolling motor and chase them down. So I'll use really light line to increase my casting range. It's always going to be braided line. If you still have some nanofill around, that's perfect. Uh, if you don't have nanofill, you've swapped it out for something because the nanofill was discontinued, but it was the longest casting line I've ever dealt with. Um, the next best thing, in my opinion, is going to be X9 braid. And six-pound X9 braid has got a ton of tensile strength. Look that stuff up. It holds knots well, and it casts like a dream. So something like that. So the long rod, the light braid is going to help a bunch. Then the next thing, always going to have a fluorocarbon leader in this scenario, regardless of what I'm throwing. Uh, again, because a fish can be a little bit selective. They've got a ton of bait around them. They know what they're looking at, and they can be a little bit selective uh, in what they're willing to bite. So I'm going to have a fluorocarbon leader on there. It's probably only going to be 18 inches long, something like that, uh, so that I can, can I can throw it without having the knot go through the tip guide. And that also will let me throw it a long ways. A little bit longer amount of line out off the tip of your rod will let you throw it farther. So those two things work out just fine. Now, when it comes to specific baits that I'm going to throw, it almost doesn't change a whole bunch. And it comes down to a decision pattern that, or decision process very simply. I'm going to have a horizontal bait rigged, and one, I'm going to have, actually, I'm going to have a couple of them rigged, uh, horizontal baits, and then I'm going to have vertical baits. And the vertical baits, I'm anticipating throwing into the melee that's going on and letting it sink down through uh, vertically on semi semi slight line, semi, yeah, let me try that again, on semi-slack line. Sorry about that. 
that way I'm guarding it as it falls, following it down with the rod tip, maintaining an even bow on the pressure of the rod and uh, or, or on the line with the tip of the rod. And so I'm guarding it as it goes down through there. My number one bait, without question, if I want to drop it through the school and down below, and this is also going to work for you if the school dissipates and they came to the surface, it went crazy, it's gone, you might be able to get another bite or two by letting a spoon sink down through them. So my first one I'm going to reach for is going to be a Johnson Sprite, and it's going to be very close to the size of the bait fish or smaller, typically not larger. I don't do well with larger baits in schooling scenarios. This is one scenario where a smaller than average bait will get you more bites in my experience, particularly with white bass wipers and stripers, but also with other fish as well. So my Sprite might be, or uh, yeah, my Sprite spoon might be anywhere from the smallest one up to maybe, maybe a half ounce one, depending on the size of the shad they're feeding on. It's going to be chrome or gold chrome, depending on the amount of tannin in the water. Uh, tannin being is what makes water look like iced tea. Uh, not, we're not talking about mud. We're talking about tannin, which stains the water, but is not particulates in the water. Uh, schooling activity like this, by the way, rarely happens in truly muddy water. I'm not sure why, but I don't see it in really muddy water, but I do see it in tannin-stained water. So it's either going to be chrome, gold chrome, or white pearl, somewhere close to that. Uh, the white or pearl color will come out when there's no sun. Um, chrome or the gold chrome will come out when there is sun. But that's about it. And that, again, I'm going to throw it into the school. I'm going to let it sink. I'll give it some slack and let it sink and follow it down with the rod tip. And usually the bites will come maybe from the time the bait hits to three or four or five feet down. I've seen a few scenarios where you can let that thing sink for a full 10 seconds. Just let it keep going down. And what you'll sometimes run into is big, say, smallmouth that are underneath the white bass or the wipers or stripers. And I've seen that happen a bunch at Lake Powell too. But I've also seen it happen at Boyd Lake here in Colorado where you let that spoon sink. Let's say all the, the, white, the white bass are on the surface. They're three to five feet under the surface. You let that spoon go 10 to 12 feet down and a big old smolly picks it up. And really all he's doing is roaming underneath and getting all the shad that are stunned or spit up by the wipers and or the white bass. And so that can be... Uh, a, a, a kind of a tricky way to get a couple of bonus fish is to let something sink horizontally and deep through them. I may do a lift and drop, lift and drop all the way through them as well. So in other words, if I can make a throw to the other side of the schooling activity, if I'm close enough to them and I can throw all the way across them, that's what I'll do. And I'll do a lift and drop in the top, you know, say three or four feet of the water column. Uh, and just do a lift and drop where I snatch the bait up real hard and then let it flutter and snatch it up and let it flutter. And you're again, same thing, you're trying to get them to trigger. And the key is the drop, that fluttering drop. That's why the spoon is so important for that, is the fluttering drop. Now, I also have been known to throw a jig head with a gold minnow on it, and that will work for you as well uh, in a lot of scenarios. And I like that combination. And these days, I've gotten away from that a little bit because the power switch, I started fishing it last year, power switch is kind of a hybrid jig. And the only reason I'd put the gold minnow down and fish the, the hybrid jig is it's infinitely more durable and requires less maintenance. A gulp minnow is great if you have a slower presentation or a presentation where they're going to get a long time to look at it or they're not maybe actively feeding where you need them to really hold the bait. 
but obviously it'll pull off the jig head, it'll tear up after a fish or two. Uh, if you get too abusive with it, the gulp might come off the jig head, whatever the case might be. The power switch, on the other hand, I can fish it and fish it and fish it and fish it and fish it. It doesn't, nothing goes wrong with it, nothing happens, and it still triggers excellent bites. So that's a really good call. I can work it vertical, horizontal, or anywhere in between, same as I can with the gold minnow. So that's an excellent choice. Another really good choice is a small jerk bait. Now I'm going to emphasize small. This is not the time to throw a six inch long jerk bait when they're feeding on three inch long shad your best bet is to throw a small one and it needs to be high in the water column. So here I'm going to go to a, something like a hit stick and maybe it's a number nine, which is nine centimeters long. Um, that would be an excellent call. It might even be one size smaller than that. Uh, but a hit stick, it doesn't sink. So if I kill it, it'll just hang right there and be the proverbial sitting duck. So I can work it real fast, jerk it down real hard and work it real fast and then just kill it and let it sit there scatters the bait fish away from it, and then wham, two seconds after it stops, it gets absolutely smashed by a, by a wiper, white bass, whatever. So that's an excellent possibility. And then the other one is a lipless crankbait. And a lipless crankbait, particularly if this is happening in low light conditions, a lipless crankbait, crankbait can be really good because the whole point of a lipless crankbait is it's full of a lot of small BBs instead of a couple of big BBs. And it's made to mimic the sound of small bait fish fleeing in different directions. And if you've ever snorkeled or scuba dived around schools of bait, it almost sounds like breaking glass when they scatter. Well, if you listen to a lipless crankbait, typified or invented, I guess would be a better word, by a rattle trap, but, uh, but there's a jillion companies that make them. 99% of the time, uh, I'm gonna fish a war pig, which is made by Berkeley, um, but there's, Yozuri makes a vibe. There's, I mean, there's a, there's a slew of them. I can't even think them all off, off top of my head. But again, I fish the war pig, has excellent balance. It doesn't roll over on its side when it settles, which the old school rattle trap can do. So again, the war pig then, or the lipless crankbait, I can work it horizontally really quick. So I can throw it all the way across the school and just burn it through them really fast. In that scenario, I'll typically steer it a bunch with the rod so that the rod may be pointing all the way to my left. And while I'm reeling without changing my cadence on my reel, I'll swing the rod all the way to the right. And that will just give the bait a little bit of an S turn in the middle of its retrieve. And again, excellent way to trigger. You gotta keep in mind the operative term here is trigger. We're not trying to feed them, they're feeding themselves. They have a ton of bait in front of them. You have to be the one that catches their attention. It still looks running, looks healthy enough to run, but catches their attention and attempts in some way, shape or form to flee and does something erratic. So. I mentioned the jerk bait, the lipless crankbait, I'm gonna steer it a whole bunch. The spoon in and of itself is very erratic in the way that it flutters down. And that power switch is only as erratic as I make it or the gold minnow, either one. So when I start snapping that thing around, I can make it as erratic as I need. And the power switch can be worked tip down almost exactly like a jerk bait, jerk bait where it'll just dart back and forth in the water column. It can also be worked tip tip up and be more of a lift and drop type scenario where it looks more similar to a tube jig. It will spiral off to one side because it has a flat belly and nose on it. Um, but again, I can do whatever with it. It doesn't have any built-in action in the same way that the, that the straight-bodied you know, minnow doesn't have any built-in action. So it's up to me to give it the action. But almost invariably, it has to be both fast and erratic to get bites or sitting absolutely dead still, like real crazy fast and then just stop and sitting dead still. Uh, really excellent scenario uh, to get a lot of bites 
from that deal. In all cases, same as with the spoon, chromes, whites, or gold chrome going to be the overwhelming favorites for me. Uh, any given day, any given color could get bit, but day in and day out, chrome, white, or gold chrome will for sure get bit. And most of the time, it's going to be chrome or white because I don't run into as many scenarios where I see schooling activity in tan and stained water. But if I do, it's common in salt water. You will see it commonly in salt water, in typically in intracoastal areas, things like that. Uh, but otherwise, you don't see it a tremendous amount. But when you do, gold chrome is always your friend when you see tan, and, and, uh, and that's the scenario there. The other thing about schooling activity is if you hook a fish, uh, a lot of times if you just leave him there and let him go crazy, the rest of the school will stay with him. So if you've got a buddy and you're having a hard time, particularly if you're having a hard time getting them to bite, is as soon as one of you hooks one, the other buddy should reel in and throw right to that fish because a lot of times the other fish that are schooling around with him will try to get whatever he's hooked with. So particularly if you have something like the hit stick with a second treble hook on it, you might end up getting them two at a time. But if you got a buddy that's quick, Johnny on the spot, and gets a cast in there in a hurry, then he'll have a good shot at picking up one of the fish that's chasing the other one around. And so that's a, a scenario where working together as a team, you can get them caught in a hurry. And so that's a, a really good, really fun way to fish as well because you know, you're working together, and which always makes things fun. For me, I don't like to blind cast for schooling fish. So more often than not, I'm going to wait for them to come to the surface to where I know exactly where they are and try to gauge which direction they're moving if you can. Usually the school will be slightly moving in one direction or another. Try to lead them a little bit, be on the leading edge of the school, not the trailing edge of the school, and uh, and then try to work all the way through there if you can. That's a really important thing. If you're fishing behind them, your bites are going to drop a bunch. You need to fish in front of them, and, uh, and that'll definitely help. And I really like the scenario where they're schooling some, uh, but the bait fish is very, very visible on the surface. And these days, you might be able to see them on, on a live sonar or forward-facing sonar. Uh, in my case, it's active target. If I can see a bunch of shad that are right under the surface and I can see the other fish that are under them, which you can easily see on your, on your uh, active target or your live sonar, whatever it is, live scope, whatever brand you use, um, then I will maybe throw my either my lipless crankbait or my jerkbait into the school of bait and then purposely use it to try to scatter the bait fish. So in other words, I run a jerkbait into the middle of that school of shad they will break and scatter away from your jerkbait, and then you just kill the jerkbait. And now it is, again, the proverbial sitting duck, and it will get blasted. So uh, that's probably about as fun as it gets right there when you can see it happening on the, on the, on either on the surface or on the graph, and use your bait to scatter the school fish and go from there. I've, by the way, done serious damage on snook on, in bait fish in real shallow water, particularly when they're running the swash channel, you'll get white bait, quote-unquote, running down the bank, uh, running down the beach in the swash channel. You can scatter that bait with your lure, and your snook will then blast your lure. And the snook, on the other hand, if you throw it to the snook, you don't catch anything. But if you scatter the bait and make your lure the, the last man standing, so to speak, they will get bit. So uh, fun stuff. The biggest thing is, is to keep in mind is getting in range, however you do that, whether it be you kill the motor come at them with a full head of steam and then kill the motor, let the boat drift into them, 
sit in one area and hope that they come to you or slightly herd them uh, along or you know into a into a hard spot so to speak um, then that's really good the real light braided line uh, so that you can throw a long ways just run soft drags if you're worried about it run soft drags and let fish run if you need to if you have to you can chase them in the boat um, baits that are erratic fast crazy looking whites chromes and gold chromes uh, very important to keep those things in mind and then possibly either leaving with a fish that's hooked in the water and letting the school stay around him or just throwing at him right away with the, if you got a buddy in the boat and uh, and getting them to go that way. But schooling fish, it's a little bit of a specialized thing. It's not something that everybody has access to, so I didn't want to do too much about it. But at the end of the day, it's a really fun way to catch fish, and it works for wipers, white bass stripers, largemouth and smallmouth. I've not seen trout do it, but I'm sure they do in certain scenarios, um, and, a, and a wide range of saltwater fish do it. So it's not unheard of. It's just a matter of, uh, of timing yourself, and typically it's going to be starting about this time of year, maybe a couple weeks ago. It's going to peak sometime around the end of August or early September, and then from there it'll start evolving into a, into a true jig and spoon bite where the shad are no longer coming to the surface as the water gets colder and colder. And again, that'll depend on the region that you're in. So that's my summary. I love chasing schooling fish. I recommend you go give it a whack too and keep an open mind about it. Make lots of casts and uh, be prepared to make long throws. You'll catch a ton of fish. So I appreciate you guys tuning in to this episode. If you want to join the conversation on Facebook or Instagram, I'd appreciate that very much. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you hear it, and especially please subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's a labor of love. We're posting a lot of stuff there, putting a lot of effort into that. And, of course, we hope you'll tune in and see what we're up to on World Fishing Network or Altitude Sports. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Fishful Thinking, the podcast. (laughs) 